Hello, everyone, and happy Sunday. My name is Hannah Syriac, and you're listening to Fair Voice. Fair Voice is Fair Mormons podcast. Before we jump into the topic today, I wanted to take a chance to answer one of the questions that has been asked to me. Um, rest assured, if I have not responded to your email, I will respond to it this week. Life has been crazy. I had an accident, but I'm doing totally fantastic. So I'll be able to catch up on those emails soon. The question of the day today is a very interesting one, and it is, Hannah, how do you approach scriptures that seem to contradict themselves? That's a really great question, and my answer might not be pleasing for some, but this is how I personally do it. When scriptures seem to contradict themselves on their face, I try to look very deeply at the meaning of them and at the context of them and try to create a harmony. I don't necessarily hold to complete scriptural authority. I'm not sola scriptura. The Latter-day Saints generally are not sola scriptura. We also believe in modern revelation as a way of clarifying things, as a way of expanding what we know line upon line, precept upon precept, right? That's a concept we're all familiar with. So when I encounter scriptures that seem to contradict themselves, what I do is I try to work from the presupposition that they can be reconciled in some way with modern revelation, or I try to work from the presupposition that there is something that I'm not understanding. This does not necessarily mean that all scriptures will be 100% accurate. Um, We see this in the Book of Mormon. In the Book of Mormon opening section, we see that if there are mistakes, they are of man. This provides us a tempering factor. I don't try, I try not to suggest that scriptures are wrong. That is not a position that I like taking. I do believe that scriptures are the word of God, but that the word of God is filtered through a human brain. So that can cause expression to mean something different to another person that is what is responsible for our our misunderstandings in modern times a lot of the time as well too. If we think about it, when we misunderstand one another, it's often because we interpret what the other person says and this interpretation can cause us to not completely understand the original intent of the scriptures. My presupposition is to assume that there is a harmonious reading of the scriptures that I cannot understand and work from the assumption that these scriptures are things that I need to approach with as much scrutiny as possible. I like to look at particular words. I like to analyze the usage of these scriptures over time by prophets and apostles using the BYU Scripture Citation Index. This often allows me to have a more harmonious reading of the scriptures. There have not been instances where I have encountered scriptures that seem to contradict themselves that I have not been able to reconcile them. For example, when we, when we think about prophetic calls to unity, this is a great example. We have a lot of prophetic calls to unity, but we are also told that the middle ground is shrinking. How can these both exist? Well, we see in the scriptures that we are supposed to unite ourselves with our fellow believers, that we're supposed to unite over particular concepts, and that we are called to love everyone, but that some people will attack our values in ways that we cannot necessarily be physically united with them or we cannot be community-wise united with them in in specific ways. That does not mean in all ways. So I try to think about scriptures in that sense. I try to take a step back and think about how all of these ideas can coexist at the same time, how we can explore the intersections of them. We can explore the tensions that are brought up there. And I think the gospel does bring up a lot of tensions and these tensions cause us to have a more moderate view of particular concepts while still being unapologetically Latter-day Saints. This does not seem to be a contradiction in itself. When we think about moderation within the gospel, I think we have have this turn off for it because we assume that if we're unapologetically Latter-day Saints, we're not moderate in any sense. That's not true. I think we do have the intersection of particular scriptures that seem to contradict themselves, which leads us to a moderate standard of behavior, which does not necessarily mean that we should not live the, the gospel of Jesus Christ completely. What it does mean is that we should live the gospel of Jesus Christ completely. That was confusing. I'll explain it. I'm saying that the tension that we see in scriptures allows us to understand that living the gospel of Jesus Christ is a very simple process, but there are different factors that run up against each other where we have to balance out with the Holy Spirit what the best approach for us to take is. I hope that was a helpful answer. Might not have been. There are different approaches that you could take, and that's just mine. But let's dive into today's topic. Today's topic is race and the priesthood, and I just want to open up with this 
because I think it'll be helpful for delineating positions. The official position from the church is that we don't know why there was a priesthood ban. This is something that many members struggle with and try to resolve. Here is what one faithful member's perspective is on how he views the priesthood ban. This is an individual perspective and does not represent the views of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or Fair Mormon. I'm really grateful today to talk with Tark, Tark DeLacour. He has been on the podcast before. And he and I here have a conversation about the priesthood ban where he shares his perspective. So please listen to the entire conversation. If you're going to listen to it, I really invite you to just listen to the entire conversation and to check out some of the resources that we mentioned after the podcast ends. Thank you. And let's just dive right into it. What was your first reaction to hearing about the priesthood ban when you joined the church? I first heard about the priesthood ban before I joined the church. I was lucky enough to know ahead of time. Don't take that for granted. There are some people who find out later. I was planning to go to church on a Sunday with my friend. This was the first time I was going to go to church. And I told my stepfather and my mother about it. And my stepfather remarked that Mormons only let black people into their church five years ago. That was his exact comment. So I did some talking with my friend about it. Then he cleared up that it was actually um, black men couldn't be ordained to the priesthood. And then obviously black men and black women couldn't be receive their temple ordinances and be sealed. So that was how I learned about it. But then I was also told after 1978 that it changed. It was water in the bridge, not something to worry about. So because I was at the point in my investigation and seeing whether this was something I could plausibly believe, just the gospel in general, not the priesthood ban in particular, I bracketed it for a time and said, if I find, if I come to believe that this is true, then I'll come back to that and dig into it more, which I did. How did you go about digging into the priesthood ban or studying the priesthood ban when, after you had heard about it? Well, the first thing I did was I asked the missionaries about it, and I learned very early that while missionaries are prepared to teach you the basics of the church, they're not necessarily going to be able to fill you in on all the intricate details. So I then asked other friends who were more adult members of the church about it. They were always uncomfortable when I did so. They would they would always point out that they had had no prejudices against blacks themselves at the time and that the church didn't either now so it wasn't something to worry about more so after seeing that pattern I thought I'm gonna have to do this on my own so I went back and read discourses from Brigham Young and others in the the original journal of discourses and uh, tried to see what they had said what their arguments were and those types of things after, uh, so this was before my mission and I had kind of come to the conclusion based on that and some journal interactions between, um, well not journal interactions, but some interactions between Orson Pratt and Brigham Young that I began to think, I didn't think it was inspired. And then subsequent to coming home from my mission, I um, then read other books that were written on the topic, which provided more scholarly detail that I thought the the band wasn't uh, inspired. So that's how I went about studying it. Can you talk a little? And that's my, my current position is, I don't think that the band was inspired. Thanks for clarifying that. That's a good way to go about studying it. Can you talk a little bit about what you learned about the origins of the priesthood band? So when Brigham Young implemented it, what were the circumstances, that sort of stuff? Well, I th- like I said, I'd started reading anything I get my hands on. Some of the justifications for the band that I read early on were from Joseph, Pre- excuse me, President Joseph Fielding Smith and his books, The Way to Perfection and Answers to Gospel Questions. 
And he mentioned that in answers to gospel questions that Joseph Smith had instituted the ban. So I thought that Joseph Smith had instituted it, but then before my mission, I had also read Lester Bush's article about it and then saw that it hadn't been instituted by Joseph Smith at all, that there had been ordinations of black men to the priesthood prior to the prophet's martyrdom and that it hadn't come about until uh, later in the Utah period that the ban was instituted. So that's where I started. Did God ever, sorry, did Brigham Young ever say that God told him to institute the priesthood ban? No, he spoke on his own authority as a prophet. He said that uh, if no if no prophet ever spoke it before, I speak it now. And this was in the Utah Territorial Legislature, not at General Conference or anything like that. As uh, people forget, Brigham Young was wearing two hats in Utah. He was territorial governor, as well as, as well as being president of the church. That's helpful to know. Could you please talk a little bit more, expand a little bit more on what you said about the scriptural just- justification that Brigham Young provided? Well, he provided a long mentioned Protestant theme that was justif- that was used to justify slavery, namely that uh, uh, Canaan, who was the grandson of Noah, had been uh, had been cursed, and it says in Genesis that Canaan's descendants will be the servants of servants, so or in other words, slaves. So people had used that to justify slavery, and then. Brigham Young taking that same kind of thinking that Canaan was cursed. No, actually that was, they were cursed with black skin and they were denied the priesthood and they still can't have the priesthood. So that was his justification scripturally. But at the beginning, he said it was his authority as the prophet that gave him the right, that was what instituted the ban. I would also point out this is a, and this is something that uh, Paul Reeve who's the author of Religion Religion of a Different Color, says in his book, uh, he has three chapters on this issue. He points out that President Young, before um, the ban was instituted, had said that priesthood and race had nothing to do with each other and that one of the best elders, Walker Lewis, was black. So we have to wonder what what that big change is. Um, Paul has some some of his own ideas that he goes on to later in the book. So, but but that that was the basic idea. The curse of Can- the curse of Canaan was the was the justification. Just to be absolutely clear, did Brigham Young claim that there was ever any revelation behind the priesthood ban? He did not. At least not that we have documented. Sure. Thank you for that. Do new policies and doctrine typically come without a direct revelation as what happened in the case of the ban, or is this a different sort of case? I'm not, we, we sometimes use the term doctrine and policies, though they're different things, but they're not necessarily so. A doctrine is just a teaching. That's what a doctrine is. So it, so the policy was doctrine, but since it's no longer a policy anymore, it's no longer doctrine. We don't teach it anymore. So um, I think was your question, can doctrine, can a, can a policy change without a revelation? Is that what, it was, that, um, what your question was? Do new policies and doctrines that expand our knowledge come typically without a revelation? Well, you'd have to go line by line with each one. I don't think in principle it's impossible. We don't have a revelation making the word of wisdom a requirement, for example. And that and that's been changed. We just have the text of the word of wisdom as it's given, which doesn't make it a commandment, but then President Grant made it um, into a, a commandment. So and he didn't say that a revel- he received revelation. So it's possible he did. He did it without. We can't say for sure. Thanks for that. That's helpful to know. 
regarding the time of the priesthood ban, what did other apostles and the membership of the church think of the priesthood ban specifically at the time of Brigham Young? Well, Orson Pratt, who was a thorn in Brigham Young's side for many years, didn't agree with Brigham Young because he said that curses were not generational. So that if even if Canaan was cursed, current blacks wouldn't be cursed. So he didn't support it. Lots of people didn't seem to completely understand what Brigham Young meant with all of this, because as we uh, think about later when Elijah Abel and J. Manning James are applying to the Quorum of the Twelve for their endowments. This is when President Young is passed. President John Taylor is president of the Twelve. He's leading the church. He's not yet reorganized the first presidency. They kind of go back to the things that Brigham Young said about why she hadn't gotten, why she had, why he and she had been denied in the first place. So they weren't exactly sure what it all meant. They were still trying to piece it together. So it wasn't. All, all completely formed at one time. So, and if, as far as um, should be noted that the church's view on slavery was a bit mixed at the time in the sense of President Young and the church, officially anyway, opposed slavery, but we did come in as a slave state when we were admitted to the union uh, later. And also, uh, not as a, sorry, excuse me, not as a state, as a slave territory. We were, more, uh, after we admitted as a state, after slavery had been abolished. So, excuse me, slave territory. Uh, and also uh, certain apostles like Charles C. Rich owned slaves. So we have a bit of a checkered history there with between just believing, as Nephi said, all are like unto God. and no man should be in bondage to another. And then we have some leaders who fall short of the goal that is set out in the scriptures. What has been recently said about the ban um, within, say, the last 10 years by the church and its leaders? Let's see. So we had the B1 conference in 2018. That would be the latest when the ban itself was talked about. Uh, President Oaks said he didn't feel that any of the justifications for the ban were, were correct. He mentioned that President Packer had called him to tell him that the ban had been changed. President Oaks was then president of BYU, and he was very happy that the ban had uh, changed. Uh, so there was that. So we had the B1 conference. Um, in 2013, a essay, the Gospel Topics essay, was um, released. So that was another thing that the church says where they talked about the different justifications for the ban and said that they were all incorrect. So that's just echoing what President Young said, excuse me, President Oaks said five years later. Um, and that's been about it. The church really hasn't formally talked about the ban very much, although the church has repeatedly denounced racism with President Nelson doing so just a few weeks ago in general conference, and also uh, him joining up with the NAACP to work for more racial equality here in the United States. Thanks for that. That's really helpful to know. And the title of the essay that you refer to is race in the priesthood and it can be found on the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints website but we'll talk a little bit more about resources later on so just to clarify your position on the priesthood ban is that its origins are uninspired that's correct what is the church's position on the priesthood ban and its origins specifically The, if the essay is what we take it to be, it to be the church's official stand on it, the, the, their stand is that the justifications were, were false, but it doesn't say whether the ban was inspired or not. It actually is silent on that. 
Yeah, it and I just like it doesn't it does so because the issue just isn't addressed. The issue that's addressed is the justifications for the ban, and they're saying those were all false. But the sixty-four dollar question is: Was the ban itself inspired on that? They haven't spoken on. Yeah, just from the the section heading of official declaration two, I'm just going to read the whole heading. I think it's a good heading to read. The Book of Mormon teaches that all are alike unto God, including black and white, bond and free, male and female. Throughout the history of the church, people of every race and ethnicity in many countries have been baptized and have lived as faithful members of the church. During Joseph Smith's lifetime, a few black male members of the church were ordained to the priesthood. Early in its history, church leaders stopped conferring the priesthood on black males of African descent. Church records offer no clear insights into the origins of this practice. Church leaders believe that a revelation from God was ne- needed to alter this practice and prayerfully sought guidance. The revelation came to church president Spencer W. Kimball and was affirmed to other church leaders in the Salt Lake Temple on June 1, 1978. The revelation removed all restriction with, re- with regard to race that once applied to the priesthood. I believe that's the only time that the church mentions anything about the origins of the, of the ban, and it says that the origins there are unclear. But since you consider the priesthood ban a mistake or uninspired, the golden question here is, why do you still believe that Brigham Young is a prophet, even though he made, in your view, this big mistake? Because I don't, because I don't think, I think prophets are fallible, just like anyone else. I think just as individuals can make mistakes, still be good people and people who are admirable in other ways i think presence of the church can fall short and still be prophets god um as elder holland said in a recent conference god only has imperfect tools to work with so we shouldn't expect perfection so i don't either um i would compare my belief in Brigham Young similar to my um, an admiration of him because I still not only believe in him as a prophet but I admire him very much as a man I would say the same of two of my other heroes uh, David Hume and James Madison both of whom I consider brilliant thinkers and giants uh, intellectually but who were um, who were very um, racist men so that was but i still think they're um worthy of study and still have a lot to teach us and i still i i still think that brigham young does too i think the same could be said of aristotle um since you consider the priesthood ban to be a mistake or to have uninspired origins why do you still believe that brigham young is a prophet of god I think that presence of the church, just like anyone else, are fallible, that we they can make mistakes, even grave mistakes, but they're still prophets. They're still the Lord's mouthpieces. They still have the keys. So that's what makes them a prophet. Um, I guess, and also that we can still learn from what these men have to say, even if they have said a thing or, thing or two that was wrong. A good comparison for this would be Aristotle. I think Aristotle probably has claimed to be the smartest person who's ever lived. Well, Jesus of Nazareth probably would would be up there first, and maybe Aristotle's a close second. Um, So Aristotle, here's a man who founded a lot of what we take modern science, logic, uh, and philosophy, yet he was, he wrote in justification of slavery, had lots of sexist writings as well. And while I acknowledge that, I still think Aristotle has a lot to teach us. Um, The same could be said of my favorite philosopher, David Hume, who wrote some damning things about blacks in letters and in footnotes. But I still think that his philosophy has a lot of truth in it. And it's something we can learn from. Um, The same can be said of uh, a number of the founding fathers, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, Madison, who's my favorite, uh, and the father of the 
United States Constitution, which our scriptures say is inspired. So, you know, this same man who thought that into existence um, also owned slaves, also owned many, many slaves. And so while we can see the error and we can point that out, you can still see lots of brilliance and inspiration these types of people. So while I don't think the band was inspired, I think President Young was wrong to institute it, I still consider him a, a prophet. Thanks for that answer. That was very illuminating. It reminded me of something that Elder Cook said in his recent- Illuminating. Thanks for that answer. That was very illuminating. It reminds me of something that Elder Cook said in a recent BYU devotional. The devotional is titled, Be Not Weary in Well Doing. He says, Brigham Young also said things about race that fall short of our standards today. Some of his beliefs and words reflected the culture of his time, end quote. And I think that that's a helpful quote to illustrate that Brigham Young can still be a prophet, but as you said, say some things with respect to race that fall very short of our standards today. One other question that a lot of people have, if you bring up the perspective that the priesthood ban might have been a mistake, is that it took so long to be lifted, and that can cause some doubts for people. Could you please talk a little bit about the process of the priesthood ban being lifted and what your reason would be for its not being lifted until 1978? On Brigham Young's birthday, ironically, if I'm remembering correctly. That's correct, June 1st, 1978. Well, so as I mentioned earlier, John Taylor and a few of the others weren't entirely sure about the origins and everything about what President Young had said. So there was that part. It probably just didn't come up very much simply because there weren't that many black members. So it wasn't in their consciousness. There were some times where it was mentioned and people like Joseph F. Smith defended the fact that Elijah Abel had been ordained, that they had his certificates of ordination. He changed his mind on that later. That's something I'll, I would like to ask him about in the next life, among many other things. But I think because it just didn't come up very much until the civil rights era. So this is when, this is the period of President McKay's president, David O. McKay's presidency. So that's when it just started coming up more and then President McKay wasn't able to lift it himself, but he did, it seems that as Gregory Prince points out in his book, David O. McKay and the Rise of Modern Mormonism, David O. McKay, laid the groundwork for President Kimball to lift it um, a, a little more than a decade after um, President McKay passed. Could you please describe what happened when it was lifted? How did the church lift the ban? Well, going back to President McKay, uh, President McKay had formed a committee with uh, people such as Elder Adam Benyon to kind of look at the origins of the ban and he mentioned that, and uh, Elder Benyon mentioned to the people he was talking to about it that President McKay was already at that time praying about whether the ban could be lifted. Um, he never got the okay in his lifetime. And then, so then President Kimball began to take it up and think about it later. And so as, um, Edward Kimball, his son, describes in his book, uh, Lengthen Your Stride, President Kimball went to the temple for months, he prayed about it, and then finally got a confirmation. He told the 12 about it. They prayed together in the Salt Lake Temple and received the revelation to lift it. So it was through a lot of prayer, a lot of thinking, and going through that. Before that, but before during that time while President Kimball was praying, he was also asking certain apostles to research the band to see if it could be lifted. And ironically, it was Elder Bruce R. McConkie who said there was no scriptural warrant for saying it couldn't be. So just showing that revelation comes not just through praying, but also studying and thinking as well. Is the but document... Also, but I also think that revelation can only come when we're open to it. 
I think President McKay's struggles with civil rights were very um, conflicting, with, conflicted with his ability to receive revelation to lift the ban, because I think those two issues uh, are conjoined. I don't think you can be against civil rights and then for the priesthood ban, they kind of cancel each other out. That's a fair perspective. Do you, can you talk about whether or not the document that lifted the ban is canonized? And if so, where can someone find it? Official declaration too is in the Doctrine and Covenants and it was sustained as scripture. So I would say it's, yeah, I would say it's scripture. Is, is the implementation of the priesthood ban considered scripture? I don't think so. Thank you. Um, what faith-affirming teachers have teachings have you learned from prophets such as Brigham Young and David O. McKay, despite your qualms with the priesthood ban being uninspired? I'll, I'll start with them backwards. In the case of President McKay, I think that you have to, that we should have be open to have a pluralistic perspective, namely just being tolerant of a multitude of views, such as President McKay was friends with Sterling McMurrin, who was a member of the church, but more or less an agnostic uh, and a professor at the University of Utah. And he was also close to President Joseph Fielding Smith, who was uh, a very staunch creationist and even though President McKay himself accepted evolution, he still defended President Smith's right to believe what he believed, as long as he didn't advance his official church policy. And so he, so that's one thing, just the pluralistic perspective. Um, in the case of uh, President Young, I would say that he was, he was, even though he could come across as very um, dogmatic at times, I think he was somewhat, he, he had a very creative mind that let him be open to lots of theological options on a variety of issues that I like very much. I think he was a very, it, it would have been quite a joy to see him preach. You can read his sermons and you can kind of see the fire and I'm kind of similar to Elder Holland, but even more so. And, you know, I just love his down to earth personality and his viewing of, you know, you, you can't really separate the gospel from your everyday life there. There's something that go together. That's something I've learned from President Young. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. One of the other golden questions of the night is, how do you have faith that prophets speak for God, even though they are flawed? Well, as I mentioned earlier, God only has imperfect pieces to use, tools. Um, so, God couldn't speak through a person unless they were imperfect. It seems impossible, God, besides Jesus of Nazareth, for God to speak through a perfect person. There aren't any perfect people around. So everyone he could use would be flawed. We can always point to something that's wrong with them. And the other thing about prophets is I don't think when, the, when a prophet speaks, he's not speaking about himself. What he's saying is pointing beyond itself and trying to point us to God. So the content of the message and whether it's taking us closer to Jesus Christ and closer to God and closer to us uniting as a human family, those are the benchmarks of whether something is revealed or not, I think. I think that's a really good perspective. Something that a lot of people bring up when we talk about whether or not some whether or not a prophet can be wrong is this popular quote by i believe it was president woodruff 
where he said that a prophet would never lead the church astray. Could you talk a bit about what it means to lead the church astray? And in the same vein, could you talk about what it's meant in Doctrine and Covenants when the Lord says that prophets are his mouthpieces, right? Whether by my own voice or the voice of my servants, it is the same. Yeah, I'd be happy to talk about that. Um, but first, let's go to that official declaration one is what you're talking about. And then there were some ex ex excerpts from other addresses from um, President Woodruff when he would talk about the manifesto. So he says, quote, the Lord will never permit me or any other man who stands as president of this church to lead you astray. It is not in the program. It is not in the mind of God. If I were to attempt that, the Lord would remove me out of my place. And so he will. And, and so he will any other man who attempts to lead the children of men astray from the oracles of God and from their duty. I think what that word attempt, I wish it was involved. What I think President Woodruff is trying to convey there is not so much that a president of the church can't make a mistake. I would go back also to President Young, who said, you know, I worry that people will have so much trust in prophets that they won't think for themselves and they think we can't err, and then they'll end up making a mistake. I think the essence of what President Woodruff is saying is, look, as president of the church, I can't, if I know that something is wrong and I'm trying to teach you that it's right, that's when I'm attempting to lead you astray. If I just happen to say something that happens to be wrong, but I thought it was right, you know, in other words, if I make a mistake, that's different. It's not saying the Lord will never let prophets make mistakes. It's saying that they won't allow you to, the Lord would never allow a prophet to intentionally mislead you, which I think is quite different. So that's my thought on President Woodruff. What was the rest of your question? Um, when in the Doctrine and Covenants it says, whether by my own voice, own voice or, the or voice by of the voice of my servants. Yes, it means that I take that to mean that God can speak either by himself or he can speak through a prophet and it's the same voice that's speaking it's still god i don't think that means that everything a prophet says is from god also joseph smith said it beautifully a prophet is only a prophet when he acts as such so and i think this is where this is perhaps the dilemma a lot of saints may find themselves in and saying well if the prophet says something I don't agree with, then he's just speaking as a man. If he says something I do agree with, then he's speaking as a prophet. I think all of us would do well to kind of listen to what the prophet has to say to pray and to not make a judgment right then. Give it some time, let the emotions die off, do some reflection, do some prayer, do some meditation, do lots of critical thinking about whether what they're saying can make sense and then make a decision on what you think, if it's revealed of God or whether it's not. Um, President Nelson, when he reversed the policy on letting uh, LGBTQ children be baptized, he mentioned, go home and pray about what I've said. And I remember a friend of mine who's active, but very um, not, he, not, I'd say, not, he wouldn't be a true believing Mormon in a sense, sent me a text and said, you know, I prayed about what he said and I, I believe he is a prophet. So you can't, if you're willing to seek answers out, you can get them, but you, I, I, the point, the point I'm, I want to get here is don't make a rash judgment one way or the other. Just take it in, do some thinking, do some searching, and I don't, then you'll have fewer problems. And some things you'll just have to make a decision on yourself. I mean, there are people, I have friends who still struggle with was plural marriage revealed. Um, some issues are important in the sense of, you know, this could have been an error, but 
I think that these are things that are that aren't that they don't falsify the gospel in so much as they just show that the church is made up of individuals who make decisions. Sometimes the decisions are right, sometimes they're not, and time will tell whether they were right or wrong. That's helpful. I, I think what you're saying can be summed up in like by study and by faith, right? We're supposed to study things out in our minds. We're supposed to read as much as we can and, and think about things critically as we talked about in the last podcast that you were on. We aren't supposed to just merely accept things. We're supposed to use our faculties, all of our faculties to try to understand the word of God, which I think is a very exciting pursuit. The next question I have for you is how do you exercise humility and faith that prophets are called of God while knowing that they can make mistakes? I don't see the problem. <clears throat> That's a great answer. <laughs> um, I, I, I think, I think Edward Kimball in a podcast where he was talking about his book with John DeLynn on Mormon stories said, I think that, and I'm quoting him now, he said, I, he said, I suppose people think if a person's called to a position that they're just going to be special or better than other people. But he mentioned everywhere I've ever lived, he said, there are people of the same ability who just happen not to be called. Mm -hmm. So I think that, Sometimes we think whether it's a president of the church. Now, the, the case of the president of the church, it's, it's a little different because we never really see these people one-on-one -on -one very much. Certainly not in, like in the olden days where you could just go and talk to Brigham Young yourself. Um, it would be very difficult to get an interview with President Nelson now. So, um, you know, we, we see these people who are flawed and we see their... Um, humanity but remember as i said earlier that god has to pick someone and in as far as they're not you know sinning or doing anything else give them give them your support until they until they until they have reason to lose it that makes perfect sense thanks for that some will say that the conversation we're having right now about how you think that the priesthood ban is a mistake opens up the floodgates for believing that the family a proclamation to the world is incorrect why are these two situations different i think a, a family a pro um the family a proclamation to the world is summing up a lot of what christian a basic christian theology suggests anyway i don't think there's anything in it that's um particularly new. So, whereas in the case of um, the priesthood ban, this was something that was a kind of a radical change. So it's not the same type of a thing. I think what President Hinckley was saying when he said that in 1995, you could find throughout the previous hundred years of the restoration and then also through the new testament and also in the book of mormon so i think we're just codifying and putting into one document the stances of the church on certain issues um so i just don't think they're in the same category thanks for sharing that makes sense the reason we're having this conversation, or one of the reasons, there are a multitude of reasons, but one of the reasons is this subject is particularly relevant um, due to recent discussions, especially in the United States around racism. Um, how can members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints better support those who experience racism? One would be understanding that racism is a real thing and a real problem both in and out of the church. So it's something to take seriously, uh, both, both as a member of society, as well as being a Christian. So that's one thing. You just have to accept that the problem exists. There are some people who told me that racism doesn't exist. So if you don't have, if you can't accept that, you can't make any progress on the problem. You have to first admit that the problem exists before we can do anything about it one would be the, the second another thing you can do is just letting these people who have been hurt 
um, you know, just let them vent, let them know that you understand, let them know that they're not wrong to feel the way if they feel. Um, that would be, those would be two things. Another would be study up on past racism in the United States and also um, racial problems within the church, such as, as I mentioned earlier, um, W. Paul Reeves' book, um, Religion of a Different Color. Um, that would be one book. Um, Russell Stevenson's book, uh, For the Cause of Zion, is another book. Uh, Max Miller's book, uh, uh, Race and the Making of the Mormon People, is another important book. So those are some important books to read, as well as uh, the biography of David O. McKay uh, by Gregory Prince. It's called uh, David O. McKay and the Rise of Modern Mormonism, with paying a particular attention to chapter four of that book, where race is talked about uh, in great detail. And then also uh, Edward Kimball's book, Lengthen Your Stride, which is a biography of President Kimball, uh, where he talks about what happened during the priesthood ban, as well as, which I think is very telling, uh, President Kimball's uh, racial history prior to the ban when he was the state president, when he was a bishop, and those types of things too. So being aware of the problems uh, at large. And then in the case of, um, you know, racism in the United States, um, perhaps reading um, a book, uh, the essay uh, by Ta-Nehisi um, Ta Coates, um, The Case for Reparations, where he talks about systemic racism mm -hmm. and his book, Between the World and Me, which is a short book. That's another important read as well. Those are just some things to get you started and then you'll get more references there and you can go along there. I'm a philosopher of science. And so race is not particularly my forte, but I've done a lot of reading on it since I have friends who do work in that area. <clears throat> Thank you for your perspective there. Our second to last question is, how have you been able to find peace um, with the priesthood ban and remaining a member of the church, as well as what advice would you have for someone who's struggling with this right now? When I first learned about the ban, I didn't, as I mentioned before, it was not at the top of my mind because I was too interested in finding out whether the church was true or not. Then after that, I was reading lots of material that argued against the case for the church, uh, such as, you know, things put together by um, the Tanners and also some work by uh, evangelical Christian philosophers. So I had all that going on. So again, that it just wasn't in my mind much until I think when I got to Alabama on my mission and I started thinking more about race having served in an area that was in the heart of the Confederacy as well as being a place where there was lots of uh, racial injustice um, prior to me coming there, and there still persists some to this day. Um, uh, I had actually started my mission in Mississippi, which is where Emmett Till was murdered. So it was very eye-opening for me. And that's when I started to think about it more and that's when I started actually to start getting the seeds of anger about the ban um, that didn't fester, um, that festered and kind of broke loose more later. But I remember in 2016, when I was reading the New Testament uh, for the, I don't know how many times, I was coming, I came I was reading and I read the passage where the Savior's crucified. And I was struck by him saying, you know, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, talking about the men who are nailing him to the cross. And even though I'd read this story a million times, I thought that was so moving that this man being crucified, being tortured beyond belief, is still saying, is still forgiving these people. And so later that night, I was working as a janitor at the church office building. So I had lots of time to think to myself and as I was cleaning. And I remember being moved upon 
by the Spirit to think, you know, if Jesus can forgive the men who are crucifying him, shouldn't you be able to forgive others for their mistakes, thinking of the present young and others? And so at that point, I uh, made the choice to forgive those people. Um, that's another thing, too. Forgiveness is a choice. And I, you know, I forgave them. And then it's never really been a problem for me since. <clears throat> so I've been to me, this has not been a, a uh, an issue that really causes me pain for some four years, although I don't speak for others who, I, who may feel differently. And I think to those who struggle with the issue, I think you'll never come to complete closure with it until you also forgive those who instituted it and perpetuated it, as well as those who still encourage and use racism today. Um, Jesus was pretty clear that we need to forgive everyone and the doctrine and covenants, it's pretty clear, I'll forgive who I'll forgive, but it's for you to forgive all people. And so that includes those who have done the ban, so. Thanks for that perspective. That's a really moving, moving way to move past this issue that is so heart-wrenching for so many people. And I really appreciate everything that you have shared thus far. Um, because this is a heavier interview, I decided to close with a more fun question. Um, also, I will add that it was requested that I ask this question of everyone that come on my podcast. I thought it was a good idea. So we're going we're gonna to do it. Here we go. Okay, this fun question. If you were an ice cream flavor, what uh, ice cream flavor would you be and why? I know you wanted it to be, I, I know you your idea of a fun question would have been like, I don't know, like who's your favorite philosopher I, and why? How can I be being an ice cream flavor? <laughs> you know, my favorite ice cream is either cookie dough or cookies and cream. Okay. But you know, I'm going to be vanilla ice cream because okay. it's plain but it's always consistent so i like that that's a I really like good answer and vanilla is a very underrated flavor i think i completely agree but now you have to give a brand because part of what has been told to blue me bell. is because in my bio blue it bell. says that i like ice cream bluebell okay that's that's very texas of you yes yeah. yes well i, I this, this is home for me so makes sense <clears throat> Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate having you on. Thank you. Hope this isn't the last time. It probably won't be.